Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia and today I'm speaking to Josh van den Ploeg, former guide and now social media specialist at End Beyond. Josh will be joining the team at Leave Our World a Better Place as co-host of the podcast. And in preparation, I'm chatting to him about his training and experiences as an and beyond guide, the research interests that led him all the way to Saudi Arabia, and his recent travels in Uganda. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for coming on to chat to us today. Thanks, Kaz. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Very, very excited to be here and chatting to you. Well, we're very excited to have you coming on as, as co-host of Leave Our, Our World a Better Place very soon. And I wanted to kick off with a, with a bit of an interview into you and your background and, and personality, just to give our listeners some insight into who you are and where you come from. Wow. Into my personality, deep dive. <laughs> Absolutely. Throwing <laughs> you in there. <laughs> Sounds good. Josh, so um, you're originally from Cape Town. How did you develop a passion for the bush and for nature conservation while growing up um, in what is one of South Africa's most beautiful places, but it's definitely more focused on the sea? Definitely. You know, there's, there's a lot of beautiful nature reserves around, um, around Cape Town, and certainly some of them are looking more towards the, um, uh, the safari-orientated experience now. But back when I was growing up, there really wasn't anything like you know, what South Africans may refer to as the bush. And my parents actually moved to Cape Town. I think it would have been in the sort of late, uh, mid to late eighties. And they, we still had family up in Johannesburg. So we used to go up to Johannesburg sort of once a year and we'd drive up, we'd load into the car at like two in the morning and my dad would drive us the 14, 15 hours to Johannesburg. We'd spend a few nights with my grandparents and then head over to the Kruger Park for, for two weeks and, you know, just do a little self-drive safari through certain sections of the park. So that's kind of where I got my first introduction to the wild areas of South Africa. Yeah, and it, it was a great, incredible, incredible experience getting to spend time in some of the most beautiful and wild areas. You know, as a kid, you, it's hard to really appreciate what you're seeing at the time, but I was very lucky to get to experience that. I think your childhood experiences really do instill that kind of baseline passion for something though. So, you know, if something really ticks your buttons or like grabs your imagination when you're a kid, it, it never really lets up. Yeah, yeah precisely. Cool. So um, moving on, when you went on to study, you did a degree in biological sciences and marine biology. Is that kind of, does that play into the dual attraction for the bush and the ocean? And does your enthusiasm for nature conservation extend to the marine world as well? Definitely. You know, as, as you mentioned, Cape, Cape Town is such an incredible place. And um, although we don't necessarily have access to some of the, the wilder sort of nature reserves, so to speak, we do have access to wonderful marine nature reserves. And uh, when I studied, I... I mean, I originally had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I kind of just did something that I thought I would enjoy and something that sounded cool. And I messed around a little bit in geology as well and got my degree in geology too. Yeah, it never, it never really got me as excited as biological sciences 
uh, did. And um, when I when I did my degree um, for the final year, we had to write a thesis and do um, a research project. And depending on which stream of biology you went into, you had to choose, you know, one or two projects. And I ended up doing two, and I got to do one of mine on the impacts of uh, burning in in savannas, and that was I did that fieldwork at Tlhuluem Falozi National Park in KZN, and then I was very lucky to be able to do a marine project too, and that one was looking at <laughs> sounds a little bit gory, but I was looking at fish parasites in a, fish, a species of fish which is caught off the western, southern, and a little bit on the sort of eastern coast of South Africa. And so I definitely got, yeah, I think I, I definitely was able to indulge my marine interests there as well, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really the best of of both worlds and both experiences, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, and I mean, besides the whole, you know, besides studying marine biology, like Cape Town just has so much on offer from a, an ocean exploration perspective. You know, there's some divers may say that the visibility down here is, is not always that great. And they're, they're right. It's sometimes hard to find days where the visibility is, you know, crystal clear, but there's beautiful snorkeling sites, dive sites, lots of wildlife in False Bay and in Table Bay as well to the Northern side of Cape Town. There's incredible kayaking experiences you can do here where you can get really close to dolphins, um, sometimes even whales, sunfish, so there's plenty of marine stuff on offer for anyone who's interested in that that side of things. Yeah, those Cape Town dive sites are still on my bucket list. But uh, oh, you you haven't been? No, I have to get over that fear of the cold water first. <laughs> How thick is your wetsuit? Do you even have a wetsuit? <laughs> I do, but it's not thick enough for Cape Town. I'll need <laughs> I'll need to invest. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the the other thing. You know, growing up, growing up, I just used to get in the water and do stuff. And then as you get a bit older, body gets a little bit more sensitive. And um, now I need a, you know, a proper thick wetsuit before I do anything, anything time consuming in the ocean around Cape Town. Okay, getting back to the to the land side of it, um, that fieldwork that you did at Shushlua Umfalozi, you know, obviously, it's, it's very, it's very close to and beyond Pinder private game reserve. Is that when you first came across and beyond, or did you find out about the company in some other way? Uh, it's a very interesting question, actually. I at that stage I did not know about and beyond at all. Um, I knew a few of the reserves around there, but I was so focused on Tlhuluem Falozi National Park during my studies that I I didn't really have time to visit um, any of the other reserves. And I actually heard um, about and beyond through a very close friend of mine. Um, Daniel Fenton, who now lives in Australia. Um, and he had done the ranger training course a few years before me and was working at Ingala Private Game Reserve in the Kruger Park. So, yeah, Dan Dan and I grew up together in Cape Town. And um, I'd often hear of his story, like he'd come back here on leave and we'd meet up and I heard so many incredible stories. And um, he eventually put me in touch with and beyond and suggested that I I'd do the the training course to try and become a guide. 
Mm-hmm. He was very active on the rhino conservation side, wasn't he, at one stage? He was. He did a, a, a walk from Pinda to the border with Botswana to raise awareness and funds for, at, at that stage, our very prominent um, Rhinos Without Borders program. That's, yeah, that's quite an achievement. Yeah, it was, it was quite a thing. I think he, so he was doing that walk uh, round about the time that I was doing my training. I remember quite clearly as a trainee ranger at um, Ambion Kirkman's camp, I remember I had to go and fetch one of our managers who was landing at Hootsbret Airport, just north of there. And I, I clearly remember sending Dan voice notes and just, um, mm-hmm. you know, cheering him on and saying, well done. I think he was, I can't remember what stage he was at, but I think he was about halfway through his hike or his long walk, should we say, at that point. Okay, so um, the decision to sort of to, to apply for Envion's and Quasi Ranger training course, kind of a natural move from the direction you were going into, but, um, you know, very, very far removed from the, the degrees that you'd been doing in terms of academia and that. Um, far removed from academics. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, yeah. Can you talk a bit about what motivated this decision, you know, and maybe just um, a little bit about the training itself and your experience as well on the course? Definitely. So I, I finished my degree um, in biological sciences. And um, at that point, it was kind of, you know, there was a choice between applying to do a master's and looking for um, for for work. And it all kind of just happened at the right time. And, you know, Dan put me on to and beyond in the training course. And I decided that after studying for, for five years, I would like a little bit of a break and op- opted to do the, the training course. I think at that stage, at that stage, fresh out of university, I still had a lot to learn. And um, it would have been my first sort of official job interview, if you like. I mean, I'd applied for, I'd, you know, I'd been working in restaurants, etc., during university, but this was like my first official job interview to get onto the the ranger training course. And I'm sure if you ask the trainers who interviewed me, that they probably have something to say about how I came across <laughs> at the time. But it was mainly my decision was yeah mainly motivated by wanting to, to see what else was out there. And although in some ways being a guide or a ranger is is far removed from um, academia. Um, and beyond Pinda has such a long-standing history of um, conservation as well as science. So there was definitely that aspect that triggered my interest as well in applying for the the ranger training course at Pinda. And the course itself, what what was that training um, like? Oh, that was a lot of fun. Challenging, <laughs> challenging, but uh, a lot of fun. We, you know, you, you, we were put in a lot of situations where you. You learn quickly, react quickly, learn on your learn on your feet, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I uh, I ended up spending maybe about five days of the course in hospital in Richards Bay. Oh after, no! Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> yeah, it was my own fault, but I I got tick bite fever, oh, which no. is a pretty common thing for for someone to get if they're spending a lot of time in and around reserves, especially in KwaZulu-Natal, especially if you're like walking through, you know, areas of tall grass and spending a lot of time in the wild. It's quite a common thing to get tick bite fever. And then I'd, I just had a, a mild injury, which I had neglected to tell anyone about, and I didn't look after properly myself. And so I ended up 
getting an infection and I fell asleep in, in class one day. And I remember Brian coming over to me and putting me aside and saying like, what's wrong? Is this not interest, interesting to you at all? And I said, no, I think I'm just sick. And uh, ended up getting taken to Richards Bay Hospital for five days and being put on a drip. Sure. Almost, yeah, it was quite an experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Probably not what you think about as the highlight of your training course. <laughs> yeah, uh, not yeah. not to put anyone not to put anyone off doing doing the course. The the injury was very very mild, and the infection was totally of my own was my own fault for not looking after it properly. But uh, I I missed about five days, and then I remember thinking, man, are they going to take me back after all the stuff that I've missed? But they, you know, they took me back, and I continued with the course and. And the rest is, you know, a brief history. <laughs> well, that I think that's part of the the whole ranger training concept as well. Is it? It's not obviously you have to pass the initial course, but it's not just that. That that training and evaluation and assessment pretty much continues throughout your career as an and beyond guide, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. I mean, once you once you finish the course, you get placed at a, a certain reserve, which best fits your interests and best fits your style and, and character. And after that, you still have to complete some, shall we call it in-house training. And even after that, you know, we've got a really dedicated team of regional trainers who visit all of the lodges and chat to the guides. Sometimes they hop in a game drive and just see how everything's going. And it's really refreshing to have that kind of continual training, continual learning, so that you always feel like you're progressing in some way, shape or form. And uh, was the first place that you were placed after your training course, was that in Beyond Kirkman's camp in the Sabi Sand? It was. And I actually had no idea how lucky I was at the time. I mean, I obviously, I had my friend Dan Fenton, who was a guide at that stage at Angala Safari Lodge and Angala Tented Camp. And so my first thought was like, wow, I'd, I'd really like to, to get to guide with Dan. And then there was Pinda. Pinda is such an incredible place, so diverse. After doing my studies in botany, I, you know, I could walk through the the forests and the um, and the bush felt of Pinder and just be interested for for hours on end. And then there is Kirkman's Camp, which is also such an incredible place. And I had no idea how lucky I was to go there until I got there. And did you stay at Kirkman's pretty much for most of your guiding career, or did you ever guide anywhere else? Uh, I I spent my entire guiding career there. So I was I was placed there, and then. And then it hooked you. And then it hooked me, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I spent, I, I did a short guiding stint at, at Pinda um, in the south at Pinda Mountain Lodge. And then um, I visited Ngala a couple of times, but never guided there. My brother-in-law, Sean, used to work there. So visited him a couple of times. But, um, besides that, I was at, at Kirkman's camp and then eventually and beyond Tengile River Lodge as well, once that was built. Okay, so seeing as you're a Sabi Sand veteran, I have to ask you, <laughs> um, can, can you talk a little bit about what makes the Sabi Sand so different and so special and, you know, how it stands out from other safari regions in South Africa? You know, are there specific reasons why you'd recommend that a guest would visit that reserve in particular? Definitely, Kaz. I think, you know, whether, whether someone has planned a trip long in advance or whether they are thinking of planning a trip and they're chatting to someone about organizing it, uh, or they've been to the Sabi Sands before, I think the, the reoccurring draw card is the leopard viewing. It's just incredible. There, I mean, there are plenty of places that you can see leopards in, 
in Africa, you know, the, the Okavango Delta in Botswana comes to mind, um, certain areas of, of East Africa, particularly like the Serengeti National Park. But there's just something about leopard viewing in the Sabi Sands in South Africa, which is just so special. You know, there, from years and years of sensitive, sensitive game viewing, the leopards there are just so comfortable with your presence and viewing them from the vehicle makes for incredible sightings. So that would be, I think that would be my main, my main thing that sets the Sabi Sands in particular apart from other places in South Africa. And then, you know, the other thing that I really loved about Kirkman's camp was that I always felt like the game drive started from the lodge. You know, sometimes when you're in a really vast wilderness, your guide will tell you, we have to, for the first sort of 20 to 30 minutes, we need to, um, keep a steady pace so that we get into the right area to look for animals. And I just remember so many times standing on the deck at Kirkman's camp, having coffee with guests and you'd hear lions roar um, close by, or you'd hear a leopard vocalize down in the riverbed or like you drive, you know, 300 meters um, out of the lodge onto the road, which runs along the ridgeline and you'd find a pack of wild dogs or some hyenas. And it, I just felt like the game viewing, at Kirkman's camp started the moment you left the lodge, which was in some ways made your job as a guide a little bit easier. Um, other days it would cause mad, mad traffic jams. You know, you're trying to, trying to go look for lions and then somebody finds a leopard 200 meters up the road and you can't avoid it, but it's a nice problem to have as a guide, I think. Yeah, it is. As problems go, that's, that's a fairly good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a, not a bad problem to um, have. And- this is a question that I love to ask all the guides or sort of the the people who work in the field that I talk to because it really leads to some amazing stories. I think the staff in the field have got this wonderful opportunity to interact with people and to actually see the things that move them and really um, set their experiences apart. Can I ask you to share some stories about your favorite guests or your standout wildlife experiences while you were guiding? <laughs> wow. So... So many. Um, it's hard to know. Hard to know where to start. I think um, you know the first thing that I'll say from a guiding perspective, it's just incredible to be a part of a team. There's a lot of there's a lot of excitement when everyone leaves the lodge, and there's nothing better than working with with friends looking for you know looking for animals, teaming up with other guides to follow tracks of lions or, or leopards. There's just like this sense of of excitement and once you do find the animal you're looking for there's a real sense of achievement and i think the other the other part of um, being a guide that really left an impression on me was getting to work with a world-class professional tracker like jerry is the who was the professional tracker i worked with at kirkman's he yeah i mean we worked together you know eight to nine hours a day for for five years and it was really special relationship and getting to spend time on foot with him was amazing. Like I remember in the, in the beginning, I used to take every opportunity to, um, to take a walk with Jerry and follow tracks. And then eventually I started realizing that unfortunately, sometimes the best thing to do is stay on the vehicle and drive the next road, looking to see if the animal is there or if the tracks come out. And I I kind of resigned myself to, to staying on the vehicle when all I really wanted to do was hop off and go tracking with Jerry. I think um, 
what stands out as another really special guest experience and special tracking experience with Jerry was one from around early 2018. We had a lovely group of guests from the States. I think they were down there as part of, they were doing some part of an MBA course and they'd come out on a safari um, to take a break. And the, the great thing about, about sort of winter, I think it was winter time, so maybe early to mid 2018, that you can start off your safari, you can, you, you know, you can find an animal and then the temperatures are still quite cool. So you can, you can go from there and chances are whatever you'll find after that is still going to be active, whether it's a leopard, lion, elephants, rhino. And so we had the sighting of two male lions sleeping and we decided to move on. And we went to an area where we hardly ever went at that stage. You know, your, where you go as guides is heavily influenced by what your guests would like to see, as well as what the dynamics of the animals at the time are. And the eastern part of the reserve had been quite quiet for a few months because the pride that spent most of their time in that territory had shifted slightly. They'd been, they'd been taken over by new male lions and their territory had shifted, so we very rarely saw them. You know, Kirkman's camp is open to the Kruger National Park, so they were spending most of their time in the Kruger Park and not really where we were in the Sabi Sands. So we ventured out to the eastern part of the reserve and um, I just remember trundling along, chatting to my guests and Jerry tapped the top of the vehicle and told me to stop. And he said, there's tracks of lions. And then he kind of hopped off and he looked at me and his eyes were wide and he said, there's tracks of lots of lions. And so we, um, it was very exciting. I mean, immediately we, we knew which pride we thought it was. And I told my guests as much and they got super excited and we drove along the road following the tracks for as long as we could and then the tracks did a detour off a game trail at which point um jerry and i decided to track and so we left the guests briefly you know told them that if they see or hear anything they must call us on the radio won't be gone for more than 15 minutes um please stay on the vehicle all of that sort of stuff and um, we followed these tracks and there were tracks of male lions female lions sort of sub-adult um, cubs and small cubs as well. And we, we followed these tracks and I was walking ahead of Jerry and suddenly he just grabbed the back of my collar and gave me a short tug. And then he tapped my arm and pointed ahead of me and we just saw the back of a huge male lion with a massive mane melting into the bush ahead of us. It was at that point that we knew we'd, we'd finally found these lions so um jerry said he was going to stay there and and just um just listen to see if if anything happens and make sure that they don't uh, move you know he moves sort of like 50 meters away and just and just listens from that distance and at that point i um i actually ran back to the car with my rifle in like a safe position across my chest i was so excited i just jogged back to the car and in between like deep breaths I told my guests that we had found them and we raced there as we got there literally as we arrived in the sighting after picking up Jerry we we saw them catch and kill a male impala and then the pride was feeding and one of the male lions came and then all of a sudden there were four male lions on feeding on this male impala and it was just you know from start to finish one of the most epic tracking, finding, viewing, you know, moments of my guiding career.
I kind of find it absolutely amazing. Anytime I ask an NBeyonder about a favorite sighting or a wildlife experience, anybody I talk to, they're always able to tell me a story in amazing detail like you've just done. It just goes to show that when you've got a real passion for the bush, it doesn't matter how many game drives you go on. Those experiences, like you've just described, are always going to live on in your mind in technicolor detail. No, 100%. It's, um, you know, they, they, sit, they sit in there and they, they just create such beautiful memories that you'll never forget that. And like in terms of the experiences you can have, it's not always about watching, you know, lions or watching them catch things. There's... There's other moments that that sit in your mind, like watching a herd of elephants cross a river um, with just the sounds of birds calling around you, watching a sunset on um, on top of some granite rocks. There are all these moments that even they don't have to be the most insane sightings. They're just these like special memories, which, yeah, you'll never forget them. I'm sure that a comment that you get to hear a lot is um, guests always wish that they could live on the reserve like the guides do. <laughs> yes, for sure. What is this experience really like? Is it all that it's cut up to be or what's it like? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And we definitely do, we definitely do have that. You know, I, I think uh, for a guest coming on safari, it's often a dream of theirs. And, um, and and so it's just such an epic experience no matter which way you slice it and i think uh there's lots of from a guide's perspective from anyone's perspective living at the lodge there's there are a lot of pros and there are some cons too i think um i think you know being in a wild space is really important there's lots of studies which have been done that just show that being in and around nature or making sure that you spend a decent time in and around nature is really rejuvenating and really important and it doesn't have to be you know, it doesn't have to be a lodge in the middle of the biggest nature reserve in south africa you know it could be something as simple as making sure that you get out to the local park or forest or or hike up the mountain or spend some time on the beach whatever it is but i i think um the definite one of the biggest pros of of living in a nature reserve, living at a lodge is just being in nature all the time and spending a significant amount of time in wild spaces with natural sounds, no light pollution, um, uh, yeah, like not great cell phone signal or Wi-Fi. It sounds like a, you know, it's sometimes it can be a frustration not being able to communicate, but in in retrospect, being in a remote area with poor connectivity is is actually a blessing these days. I think. Yeah, it can be definitely. So, so yeah, that's definitely one of the one of the pros in terms of um, in terms of cons. Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting one because you you know you work you work a, a specific cycle six weeks on two weeks off, and in one way that's that's fantastic, and then in other ways it can be quite challenging because your your close friends at home are never really off when you're off, um, and you uh, I remember when I first when I was first in the the ranger training course, Graham Vakale um, said to us all, like, what, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to become a guide? And of course, everyone said, oh, I want to, you know, I love animals. I want to see incredible things. I love being in nature, all that sort of stuff. And I remember Graham basically told us like to stop lying. Tell it, tell me, <laughs> yeah, cause, cause if you're just here for the nature and if you're just here to see beautiful things, it's going to get old, like it's going to get old quite quickly. You need to have you need to have something else that keeps you going. And at the time, I thought to myself, 
cool, I'm going to work six weeks on and then two weeks, I'm just going to surf nonstop. The problem is that every time you have your two weeks off, you need there needs to be waves and there weren't always waves so oh, no. that was uh, that was another con is coming home and there weren't there weren't always fantastic waves to catch there's sometimes periods of of uh, there were sometimes flat periods where there wasn't a single wave to be had in all of cape town so anyway i found i found other other things to keep me going it's like any beach holiday the weather is always the best on the day that you have to leave to go back yeah precisely exactly Josh, circling back to the leopards that we spoke about in the Sabi sand, um, and also basically your interests and you know your studies, your research. I know that during your time at Kirkman's, um, you initiated and worked on a project to create an ID kit for leopards in the reserve. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know the project, how the idea for it to ca- came about, and why? it's actually so important to be able to identify and track those individual animals. It's a great, great question, Kaz. I think, I think it's, it's hard to work in the Sabi Sands and not become passionate about leopards because you just have such incredible moments spent with them. Uh, and, you know, over the years, you rack up this time spent with them where, where you see them doing all of the stuff that, you know, you'd probably never see them doing if you if you didn't get to spend that amount of time watching them. And so you just develop a real, yeah, I guess, a real passion for it. And um, the, when I first arrived, there was an identification kit and um, we hadn't done one, hadn't, we hadn't created one for a while. Turns out that because the leopard population is always shifting, that this is actually something that needs to kind of be done quite regularly. But um, myself and, and Matt Smith, uh, who who was working with me as a guide at the time, we put together an ID kit so that we could better identify the leopards and that we could also share the story of the leopards with our guests. And I know I know that Dylan Royal is currently working on an exciting new leopard kit for Kirkman's Camp in Tinkile River Lodge at the moment. But it's it's important to walk the fine line between speaking in anthropomorphic terms and telling you know the stories of animals as they are relevant to their habits and their biology. And I, I think that having a leopard ID kit and being able to identify the different individuals properly helps you tell their story of like which female had cubs, why she may have lost the cubs, or where did those cubs go once she became once they became independent? You know, how are the male leopard dynamics shifting? Why are they shifting? You know, what are the ages of the different leopards and why might one male be ousting another one and what does that mean for the females and their cubs in the area so there's just so many interesting stories about leopards that you can pull out of being able to identify the specific individuals and we were also um, very involved with panthera the big cat conservation company well known throughout the world they do a lot of great big cat conservation the world over but their project in the sabi sands is one of the most successful and one of the most long-running and it relies on guides identifying leopards and entering data on the leopards. So they have this really handy database that you can enter the information on. And you, can, you have to identify the individual. So that was one motivation for creating this ID kit to, to assist our guides in IDing the leopards and, and making sure that we get you know, the most accurate data to Panthera. So there's that. And then you can also fill in data like 
um, obviously where the individual was seen. Um, was it a female with cubs? Uh, did she have a kill? If so, was the kill stolen? Was it stolen by a lion, leopard? Was it stolen by a hyena? Did she hoist the kill? What did she kill? Was she mating with a male? Which male was she mating? Like all of this incredible information that can then be used to uh, run studies and um, statistical tests to, to further leopard um, conservation. So that was one of the main um, motivations behind creating that ID kit. It's a pretty fascinating project. I know you've had a longer sort of relationship with Panthera as a, as a result of that. I think at this stage, it's, it's kind of a pretty good lead in to talk into some of the other projects that you've done with, with Panthera, the more recent one. And I know that this happened sort of during COVID and during all the lockdowns that were going on. So that was pretty challenging. But on the back of the leopard ID kit work you did in Asabi Sand, you were invited to travel to Saudi Arabia, um, I think it was last year, and to work with Panthera on a project involving the endangered Arabian leopard. I honestly, before I heard about that, I didn't even know that there were leopard in Saudi Arabia. So I'd really <laughs> love to hear. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to, to hear be, a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I had no idea either. I knew that there were leopards in in Oman, and I had heard that there were leopards in Yemen. So you know, it stands to reason that there there should be a population in, in Saudi Saudi Arabia as well. But to backtrack a little, that was that was sort of while we were still in lockdown and the director of, the, of Panthera's leopard program, I'm not sure if he still is, he, he, he may have a different title now, but at the time, Guy Baum was the director of their leopard program and he was visiting the Sabi Sands and we met up with him, chatted to him and Matt Smith was actually leaving the lodge at the time and, and Guy had kind of chatted to him about potentially this potential opportunity in Saudi Arabia. And, and I actually... Um, I was staying at the lodge, so I, I wasn't involved. And then we left the lodge and moved back to Cape Town. And um, sometime, I think it was like right before Christmas, I got a, a, an out-of-the-blue voice note from, from Guy asking me if I'd be keen to go to Saudi Arabia. And, of course, I was immediately keen. It kind of, obviously, it was a, a, a tricky time for a lot of people, but it was a, a great opportunity, so... I, I certainly didn't want to pass it up. And it also kind of, I think it ticks a lot of, it, it ticked a lot of my boxes in terms of like uh, <laughs> dream jobs, you know, hiking through mountains, setting up camera traps, you know, job that involves the outdoors plus exercise plus conservation is just kind of, is perfect, right? So, yeah, so we, we ended up going to Saudi Arabia and uh, helping Panthera set up their camera traps in, a mountain range which runs sort of along the peninsula, along the Arabian Peninsula, and it was it was unbelievable. I think not many people associate Saudi Arabia with mountains um, yeah. or that part of the world all, at you, all. You, you just know, think desert, think right? It, yeah, exactly. But um, I mean, in reality, every, everything I read about the country, you you figure out there's actually quite a lot of mountains and a lot of really rough, rocky terrain. It, it, it really is. It's actually for a very arid country. It's incredibly diverse in its terrain, its its plants and animal species. We were very lucky to spend some time with Dr. Andrew Spalton, who's like the leopard expert from Oman, and um, he's written a few uh, a mammals book as well in the area. So that was really lovely getting to spend time with him in the wild areas of Saudi Arabia. You actually kind of feel at home in a way because you're hiking through these mountains. It's it's dry. It's hot. 
but a lot of the species are are similar to what you'd find in South Africa. There's a lot of overlap in bird species, for example, like uh, we saw um, green pigeons, and we saw African grey hornbill. Um, so there's a ton of overlap in, in bird species and then plants too. Like there's a lot of different, um, I'll just use the old name. Um, there's a lot of different acacia species. Sorry, Brian. And, um, <laughs> and there, there's also a species of impala lily, or um, I think the, the scientific names are denium. And those, you know, we get those in Africa too. So you kind of feel at home in a way, although you're in, a country with a completely different culture, um, different customs, you, you, you do kind of feel at home. And you walk through some really incredible places. Like um, all of Saudi Arabia is crisscrossed by these, these riverbeds. Some of them don't flow anymore, but most of them flow seasonally. And they're called wadis. And because these, you know, obviously it's a dry country and a lot of people live their lives around around like water as a resource and so these wadis are like the center of um of life in saudi arabia or they cert they certainly were in you know in in the past and so all these areas are named after the main wadis that run through them and some of the wadis are wide enough for you to drive a vehicle through um, and then when we were looking for the um the spots to set up camera traps we would map them out on on google earth and then you drive up a wadi as far as you can go, and then you'd end up hiking sort of further up the wadi. And it's, um, it's just incredible, like so many different um, towering rock formations. There was one place where, I mean, if you come to Cape Town, we'll show you impressive granite outcrops. But, you know, in, this, this was just on another level, like driving through a, a wadi, which was just had these incredible granite massives that were, I don't know, like, you know, maybe um, a few kilometers in width and length. Just, it, just the scenery and the landscape was incredible out there. Oh, it sounds like a really once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. Yeah, it was. It, it really was. And I think there's something, um, yeah, there's, there's something so unassuming about being so totally hindered in communication. Like, luckily, some of the people we were working with um, spoke the local language fluently but you know as a south african i definitely do not speak do not speak arabic so but there's there's just something so raw and unassuming about having to communicate with people and you can't speak their language and and they can't speak yours and so there's a lot of hand gestures a lot of google translate if you have signal and then um the people in 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 Saudi Arabia are very welcoming and you know you get to feel that wherever you go so we worked in multiple areas and experienced the culture of multiple different uh, tribes within Saudi Arabia and different foods as well which was really cool but we we had this one experience where we were driving like I said driving up a wadi and um, looking for a place where we could start hiking uh, and you always, um, you, you never start work or Panthera never started work in an area without first receiving confirmation from the local, um, the local government that they were allowed to be there. But people are very protective of their land and of their wadis. So even though you have like this official letter that states you're, you're here doing conservation work and you have permission, people, people are still a little bit mistrusting. The most interesting experience I had was with a, a local guy named Yusuf and 
we were driving up a wadi and out of the blue, like you must, you must know though, there's like huge boulders around us and we're driving on this, this small track in the rocks and there's nowhere else to drive. And suddenly out of the corner of our, of our rearview mirror, we just see this land cruiser just like bouncing over these rocks with these two guys looking incredibly angry and they cut us off. And Yusuf said to me, don't worry, I'll, I'll handle this. And he got out and I just saw them like gesticulating at each other. There was some pointing in different directions, some slightly raised voices. And Yusuf got back in the car and I said, is everything all right? He said, yeah, everything's fine. They've invited us for lunch. So, <laughs> so I mean, we had so much work, so much hiking to do that day that we kind of agreed that we would do it if we had time. But we hiked up the wadi. We eventually set up our camera trap. And about two hours later, we came back. And Yusuf was about to go to them and say, look, we, we may not have enough time to take you up on our offer, take you up on, on your offer. And before he could do that, I looked behind him and there was a, um, there was a, a goat lying on the ground that they had slaughtered for us in our honor to welcome us for mm -hmm. lunch. So Yusuf was like, well, now we absolutely yeah, cannot you say can't no. Back out. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but just feeling that very, I think the incredible thing for me was how they could go from, I wouldn't say hostile, just protective, very, they could go from so protective um, to suddenly so incredibly welcoming the moment that they understand what you're actually there for. Um, and is that project in Saudi Arabia still ongoing? You know, sort of what, what stage is it in? Are they still gathering data? Are they analyzing it? What's, what's the status of that? Yeah, so they're, they're kind of, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing project. I, I don't know all the finer details. I just worked briefly as a, as a um, field technician. But um, when I had, when I left, sort of in March, was it April in 2021, um, they hadn't found a leopard yet. There are lots of other promising signs of wildlife like Arabian wolf, caracal, porcupine, um, uh, some, some ibex as well, which was really cool, but um, they hadn't been able to find a, um, a leopard just yet. So hopefully sometime, I think they're still busy surveying different sites along the peninsula and so hopefully sometime soon they manage to find presence of a leopard. Okay Josh, circling back a little bit, back to your time in the Sabi Sand, um, you know I know you mentioned that you did the strip with Panthera happened after that but I know you were in the Sabi Sand at the time when you know sadly the whole, the whole COVID pandemic began and lockdowns and travel restrictions hit around the world it must have been just so incredibly surreal to be in this game reserve, which is one of the most well-known and the most popular in South Africa, but not around the world. And I mean, the Sabi Sands got a pretty dense selection of lodges and it's really, really well managed, but there's lots of game drive vehicles, lots of guests all the time. And suddenly all of that was just cut off. What was it like being there without any guests, without any of that going on? You know, did the behavior of the animals change at all? Or was that a bit of an urban myth? <laughs> Another great question. I think that was probably that was probably one of the most asked questions on social media at the time. You know, after the after the initial lockdown in South Africa, a few months of of animals spending time with without regular safaris. A lot of people were asking if their if their behavior changed and um and to be to be honest, we really we really didn't see a change. You know, like every now and again, 
even when the, the lodges are busy and you've got lots of guests experiencing their safaris, you, you'd sometimes find, you know, if you were going to one of the far-flung reaches of the reserve, you, you might see a leopard or a group of lions that you don't really see. And there was always, you could always tell that they were a little bit surprised to see this vehicle. So, you know, you always gave them some some necessary space. And every now and again, we'd find a leopard or lions that we, we saw um, semi-regularly and we'd find them, you know, we'd see them for the first time in like a month. And initially they might watch you cautiously, but very quickly they they relax around you. So I, I don't think that the animals really changed their, their behavior too much. If anything, it, it really... It, it gave us a lesson on on different ways to to find animals and also you know how how important the role of a professional tracker is in the whole guest experience because we would go out on game drives and um, the track the trackers weren't necessarily joining us all the time and we would kind of go out on these patrols to to just double check that everything was okay on the reserve and we we really wouldn't see much we certainly couldn't track it um and you you really wouldn't see much unless you stopped and listened so without the help of a professional tracker to to follow tracks and you know make that very difficult decision of which way did this animal actually go you have to resort to listening so we would start off our safari in the morning um, or our patrol i should say we would start off our patrol in the morning and stop on the ridge near the lodge and just listen for 20 minutes and you'd hear lions roaring you'd hear impala alarm calling or leopard vocalize or monkeys alarm calling and you would go there and and see what you could find because and it just kind of reiterated how much you can miss when you have the vehicle engine on and that it's always good to to stop and listen which is actually something that jerry also used to say to me he'd like in the middle of a game drive he'd randomly stop me and say let's just listen so that was quite that was quite interesting. So so the animals' behavior didn't change, but ours certainly did. I think a lot of people don't actually realize that for the fact that, that there were no tourists, there was still a lot that went on in the reserves. You know, as you say, those patrols went on and the data collection that you that you guys usually do went on and all of that sort of maintenance and um, management work that goes into keeping all of the reserves running actually still carried on regardless. Yeah, definitely. There's still, um, you know, even even though we didn't have guests, we were still still kept very busy, especially with, um, with maintenance stuff, patrols, social media, all that, all that sort of stuff. Now, Josh, you've now left the Sabi Sand behind and you're back in Cape Town and um, surfing every morning. <laughs> the waves weren't good this morning if that's what you, oh no <laughs> i didn't go that's a pity but you know you're still with and beyond obviously as a social media specialist and um soon to be co-host on leave our world a better place thank you <laughs> so um what prompted you to make that decision to leave the bush and your position as a guide yeah another another great question i think um you know we'd spent we'd spent sort of six months or so without um without guests and I uh, you, I guess you just become accustomed to a certain um, amount of, of time spent doing other things and we just decided that we'd spent sort of um, well I'd spent five years guiding and my wife was with uh, was working with me at Kirkman's camp for just over three of those years 
And um, she'd also just started a job with the Africa Foundation, who partner with and beyond to do um, community upliftment and empowerment and work on a lot of incredible projects uh, around the uh, around Africa. And um, so she just started a job with Africa Foundation. And so it was kind of time to to move on. And at that stage, she'd worked remotely from the lodge for a few months. And so we actually asked nicely if we could, um, you know, she'd been very um, productive and successful remotely. So we just asked if we could um, move to Cape Town and, instead of starting a new life in Johannesburg. Uh, and so that's kind of one of the main reasons that prompted leaving. And then, yeah, shortly after that, I went to Saudi Arabia and did a, a, a few other things throughout the year and then started as the social media specialist in October for and beyond. So you might have left the bush behind and, you know, you might be more, your daily views might be more marine life than 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 the bush life. But it's obvious that the bush and the wildlife is still very present in your life because um, I know your most re recent trip was to Uganda and Kenya. Can you talk a little bit about those experiences? You know, what were your expectations like before that trip and did the reality of it live up to it? To those expectations you know def definitely it was such an incredible experience it was tanya and my honeymoon actually to go to to go to uganda and we'd, we'd planned it for so long and um COVID derailed those plans as it did for for so many other people the world over and eventually we we kind of found this sweet spot this gap between well maybe not between um spikes in COVID infections, kind of like at the time um, where the pre-Christmas spike was happening. But luckily, we still mm. managed to travel to Uganda yeah. and then Kenya after that. And yeah, Uganda Uganda was incredible. I think, you know, we, we visited so many places and it's so difficult. Um, it's so difficult to know what it's going to be like before you go. We visited some amazing lodges. Obviously, the, the highlights for us were certainly the, the chimp trekking, um, which was really special. Uh, the gorilla trekking, which was just out of this world and an experience we'll, we'll never forget. And then I think also just slowing down a little bit and spending time on the Nile River. We had this beautiful view over the Nile River which um, for two nights during our Uganda trip, which was amazing. But something... Yeah, something that you often don't get when you are looking through itineraries online is like what the different amount of time should be in each in each spot. And we definitely felt like if we did it again, we would do it longer and slower because although Uganda seems like a smallish country, it's incredibly diverse. There's so much to do, so much to see, and the distances are actually quite long. So we actually ended up having a bit of a whirlwind tour of which the, the Nile and um, the chimpanzee trekking and gorilla trekking are the things that stand out. But everything in amongst that was just such a quick blur that we wish we could do it slow, slower. So that was a, a great learning from that. And I think it's something we'll take with us if we, if we ever do those, like a, you know, a safari trip like that again. And that's why Kenya was so special. We were able to stay with, with and beyond um, at Kichwatembo Tented Camp and Batalia Camp in the Masai Mara and really slowed things down, spent five nights there, 
didn't go on every safari. Uh, we were really, really lucky and were able to do a hot air balloon safari and a visit to the local Maasai communities, which was really special. So, yeah, like contrasting the two, obviously the gorillas, just an insane bucket list item for, for anyone, as is the Maasai Mara. But, you know, when contrasting it, such an epic time in Uganda, but just such a delightful, slow safari experience and travel experience in Kenya, which was really great. So I think it's, it, it's actually really interesting what you say about finding the right sort of um, time and the right balance, because that's always, I think it's a contradiction when you're trying to plan travel to somewhere that you maybe don't know that well. It's always that sort of push and pull between trying to see all of the places that you want to see and actually giving yourself enough time to explore each of them in depth. And um, I think it's quite an important lesson to learn. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's more opportunity for that now. You know, throughout the world, people are starting to return to offices and some people aren't. Some some people are working better from home. Other people insist that, you know, the office environment is the best for them. But my, my thoughts are like, obviously, you don't have a ton of time to travel. And so you want to fit in as much as possible, as quickly as possible. But if you work a remote job and all you need is an internet connection, I would so recommend you know, extending your travel and just working remotely and being in the space that you're traveling in, if you can, because it's, yeah, it, I just feel like if it's too fast, sometimes you can feel like you're not able to immerse yourself entirely in the experience. And that was the, that was the really big contrast for Tanya and myself from Uganda and, um, and, and Kenya is that, you know, we spent nine days driving around Uganda, which was incredible, but there were some places where we would have loved an extra two to three nights. Um, and then we were able to fully immerse ourselves in the Maasai Mara. And so, yeah, like these, these days where people are working remotely, if you're, if you're traveling and you feel like you don't have enough time to, to actually really enjoy your destination, I would definitely recommend asking to work remotely for an extra week or two and actually taking the time to, to, to enjoy the travel because so often, you know, if you're only getting a little bit of, a little bit of leave in the year or you're working and, you know, really stressful up until the point where you leave a, you know, a nine day holiday of driving to a dis different destination each day is not going to rejuvenate you. Absolutely. You're completely right. And then the add on top of that traveling with COVID, which um, is, is quite stressful. I mean, it helps, it helps having someone, um, like a you know a travel specialist from from Ambion to help you plan things, but there's a certain amount of stuff that you just have to do yourself, and if you're not used to doing that, it can be very very stressful. And um, also, I find sometimes people don't refer to things in the same way. Like a like a document will be called um, the travel receipt, and then someone will ask you for like proof of travel and. You're like I don't have I don't have that I don't have that and that that is is quite stressful. But I think preparing oneself for travel during COVID and just taking the time to to really make sure you have all of your boxes ticked is another important thing to consider. It's strange to be in the other position because as travel specialists, you know, we're always giving that advice to our guests. But it's kind of a little bit different to be in the opposite situation where you're the one traveling and having to sort of tell yourself, hold on, maybe maybe I actually need to ask for help here. Yes, 
no it, it, exactly and i think um yeah that that was an interesting an interesting experience for me as well as being like the main um the sort of main i mean obviously we had someone who who booked things for us in uganda but there was a lot of um self organization which needed to happen which um it was a lot but worth it so what's next for you in terms of travel plans and what destinations are still on your bucket list wow that's a tough a very tough question um <laughs> I think come on try and focus narrow it yeah, down <laughs> sorry there's lots of lots of different things running around in my mind I think definitely high on Tanya and my bucket list can I choose a couple is that okay Yes of course absolutely I think um I think really high on our bucket list is a proper trip to Australia one day you know I I don't know if we'll maybe one day move there maybe that would be a better time to do something like that but um Australia has so much to offer in terms of wild spaces, wilderness areas, places with really deep historical and cultural significance that are just, you know, really we 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 would really love to explore explore those. Um so Australia is definitely definitely up there and then I think yeah, I think a trip to to Chile would be unbelievable for both Tanya and myself. Obviously, you know, and and beyond has Vera Vera in the Lake District of Chile but my sense is that there is so much more that Chile also has to offer it's such a long thin country that you know all those at all those different levels from the north to the south there's so much diversity and so many incredible landscapes and after you know when you live in the city i think sometimes you just long for expanse just sheer expanse and i feel like Chile really has that Patagonia, Atacama, you know, the coastal regions, the Lake District. I think I think Chile is high on the list for us one day. Definitely good destinations and lots of fun to look forward to. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Amazing. Josh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and getting a little bit of insight into your background and your story with with and beyond as well. And we're really looking forward to having you as a regular voice as as host of Leave Our World a Better Place. Thanks, Kaz. Thanks for um, yeah. Thanks for chatting to me. That was really great, and I look forward to to being a part of um, Leave Our World a Better Place. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about and beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.